welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. So Jeffrey isn't here because this is a special edition of Troubleshooting Agile. We've got a recording of an interview with Manuel Pais and Matthew Skelton, authors of Team Topologies. And it's perfectly timed because today, Wednesday, the 29th of April, 2020, when we're releasing this podcast, is exactly when they are holding a webinar and IT Revolution, their publisher and our publisher, is uh, uh, discounting the book and uh, otherwise promoting the book. So please uh, have a look in the show notes if you find Matthew and uh, Manuel's ideas interesting on how to structure teams, because you'll find there a link to their webinar and their book. So with uh, all of that out of the way, let's go ahead and listen to the recording from last October, back when in ancient times, you know, when we were allowed out of our houses, Jeffrey and I went to Las Vegas and interviewed Matthew and Manuel. Here they are. Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. So we're here in Las Vegas, uh, looking out at the beautiful Las Vegas Strip. By the way, don't try to walk down it. Always take a car. Uh, I got lost <laughs> on the way here, but I made it in time. So life is good. And uh, we're here at the DevOps Enterprise Summit Conference, uh, put on by IT Revolution Press, which is our publisher for our book, Agile Conversations. And we're talking to a whole host of very interesting authors from IT Revolution Press. Who have we got here today, Jeffrey? Uh, we have Matthew Skelton and Mel Paish. If I did that correct, that's good enough. <laughs> good enough. Uh, the authors of Team Topologies: Organizing Business and Technology Teams for Fast Flow. Um, we were we were talking a bit before this about the kind of problems that you've seen, and, and uh, you, you said one of the key phrases for me, uh, which is uh, one of the things I find a, a huge problem everywhere, which is cargo culting. Can you? Tell us a bit about that story. What, 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 tell us more about cargo culting and the kind of problems you've seen that. that sure. So first of all, thanks for having us. Um, I was just thinking of, of this, uh, an organization I work for where um, Agile and Scrum was really adopted in a way that was, I would call cargo culting because we're trying to follow the, the ceremonies. But in fact, when you looked at the capabilities of teams and people and the way that um, when you wanted to do new developments, new uh, systems and new services, you actually still had all these dependencies on different experts. Mm. And so the teams were doing the ceremonies, but in fact, they still had all these dependencies between them and between experts. And so one of the things we talk about in our book, Team Topology, is how can we organize uh, teams and, and people in a way that they are more enabling others that, rather than becoming a, a dependency based on their expertise. Um, so we talk about enabling teams that help others gain capabilities. So, But it's quite hard for many organizations to think about experts as enablers. They think mm. it makes sense that you look an expert, someone who's an, a specialist and think this is the person who can do this work the fastest. But sure. then if that person is the uh, becomes a bottleneck for 10 other teams or 20 teams, then you're going to go much slower, <laughs> right? So that's so, the, the yeah. problem there. Yeah, you get local optimization in the sense that this, exactly. this person will be the fastest right now, but it doesn't look at the organizational impact. And so this, this is really interesting, Gab, because it's, it sounds like you had this organization that was doing sort of checkbox agile. You know, do we, yep. do, do we have the stand-up? Yes. Do we, yep. do we have, are we, you know, we have all the ceremonies. And, but they but they weren't connected to what's the outcome that they want to get. 
for being exactly agile. both the outcome and in terms of gaining capabilities and understanding if you want teams to be really autonomous and, and productive it's not just a matter of saying well now you're autonomous now you're on your own because that can be actually worse yeah it's okay what capabilities are you missing and how how are you going to get them and that starts with focusing on the team as a stable kind of unit mm -hmm. first of all and then over time how do i build those those skills that are missing um how do i manage the dependencies between that team and other teams in a way that is sustainable i would say is the, the right. key word as you can, can we talk a little bit more about what you mean by team and the reason is i think that you and i would probably have different definition of teams which is great you know, it's good to have differences of opinion i i have usually a very functional definition which is for me a team is a group of people who share a problem so for me it's not about an org chart but rather a dynamic um it sounds like in your case though you're you're talking about sort of sculpting something you're trying to shape an organization in a certain way. Is, is that right? This is delivery, yeah. So in the book, for us, a team is a very, very specific thing, which is um, a long-lived collection of uh, people. Mm -hmm. um, in, in a software context, no more than about nine nine people. Okay. And it turns out that there are some um, kind of sort of embedded um, kind of evolutionary uh, social reasons for limiting the size of um teams like this uh, and it relates to trust boundaries and there's uh, the, the um, researcher uh, Robin Dunbar uh, a few years ago came up with this concept of Dunbar's number which is 150 which is roughly the number of people um, that you might be having to be sort of close friends with on Facebook or something like this. <laughs> Turns out 150 is the uh, typical maximum size of a village in England in the Doomsday Book, which is written more than a thousand years ago, yeah. uh, when a census was taken, and so and, and you see that similar kind of numbers at different scales cropping up in in, in in lots of kind of human societal context, and it relates to it relates to trust boundaries effectively. So beyond a certain size, beyond beyond a certain set of sizes, the, the dynamic of trust changes, mm -hmm. um, and so let's say when you go beyond 150 people in the group. You start to see us and them relationship. You start to see people uh, referring to other people as, "Oh, they are not doing things correctly," mm -hmm. and, and we're the ones who who are blocked. Right. And so, there are some organisations who have, have have known about this for a long time. I mean, uh, Roman armies yeah. uh, had had certain kind of limits on on, on, on group sizes, but more recently, uh, companies like WL Gore, the the Gore-Tex manufacturer in, in mm -hmm. the US, when one of their um, offices reached 150 people, they would open a separate office rather than try and grow the, the first office because they knew that there was this dynamic, this trust dynamic would start to break down. Mm -hmm. I'm getting confused though because you, you talked about nine as the, the Indeed, top number. So, so nine so is different than 150. It is different than 150. <laughs> Help me out. And uh, it, it, it seems like, I mean, there's, 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 some, there's some debate about the, the, how you go about kind of assessing this kind of stuff, but it seems like there are, there's a kind of onion effect, an onion layering of different kind of trust boundaries. Mm -hmm. Roughly, it seems like these sort of uh, have a times three multiplier. So there's one at about 500, one about 1500 going down. But there's one at about 150, it's about three times less than 500, if you mm -hmm. like, and so on, down to uh, down to five uh, for, for very close, uh, very close trust. Um, why in the software industry, uh, teams, scrum teams or, or, or software delivery teams are slightly larger I don't think anyone's actually answered that question convincingly, but <laughs> what we do have is that we do have um, 
empirical evidence, if you like, from from organizations that are doing well at software delivery, like Amazon, for example, with mm-hmm. their kind of two piece of teams. Mm-hmm. And the, number, the size of those teams is about is about nine people. And so just kind of empirically, we're saying that there are dynamics there that uh, come for kind of human evolution and so on. Um, for whatever reason, we don't quite know yet, but in software, we, it seems to be about nine. And that seems to be about the, the, the right kind of limit. The key thing there is, there's several key things. One, um, if you've created a team and you've managed to be, get managed to get that team to be high performing, don't just dissolve it. If, if they've come to the end of the span of work that they've been working on, give them more work if right. that team is working well. But some organizations if that are very project-based will dissolve that team yes. because the work has finished, ignoring the fact that it's taken an incredible amount of energy and to, to create a high-performing team like that. Right. Just to, to interrupt for a second, but that's exactly that war story. That was exactly the problem where we're following agile ceremonies, but then people would get moved around between teams because now we have this urgent need in this other team for this expertise. And that ruined the whole, um, you know, the good part of, of becoming an agile team and, and working well together because suddenly you were reshuffling everyone based on, on new dependencies. And that's where the part about building capabilities in the teams is, is important. It's hard to build trust with you yeah. if you're going to disappear tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> we, and it's also it's what's interesting to me is you're describing this because it's this, you say stable. And you might think, well, if we have eight people on our team and then we bring a new person in. Well, that's only one person. But our experience is that every time you add or remove someone from the team, you change the dynamics. It's actually a, a kind of it's a new team. Effectively, it's a new team. It can be. I mean, obviously, those people have worked together. Most of those people have worked together. But mm-hmm. you might well have changed the dynamics quite considerably because you might have added a person who is now, who now acts as a um, uh, someone who questions a lot. Yes. And that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Right. Um, it's certainly a disruptive thing if the team hasn't been questioning a lot. Exactly, indeed. And so that would definitely change the dynamics considerably. It might have to be a really good thing for the team to have that disruption in there uh, if if they trust that person is disrupting things for the good of the team, but but they might see that person as being just disruptive in a very negative way, and so it, it might break the team apart. So I would agree with you. It, it, many organizations have not given much thought at all to these kind of social dynamics and, and, the, and the, the, the cost the, the, the huge cost potentially of of destroying a well a high performing team by adding or removing people uh, from it. There are ways to do it. So in the book we mention um, uh, something called dynamic reteaming, which mm-hmm. is something that Heidi Helfen mentions. Uh, she, she's written a she book about the this, book. which is really interesting stuff. But it's very contextualized. It's it, it's it's reteaming. It's changing teams um, deliberately in order to grow the organization, in order to to uh, to embed new capabilities and so on. It's done very deliberately. It's not just done in order to kind of manage people better. Not, not and, blindly. Yeah, not blindly. Yeah, and also because, and going back to, to the book, The Mythical Man Month, that talks about if you add one person, you're not necessarily getting... More um, capability. Yeah. yeah. So you need... Often getting less. Yeah, it's, that's <laughs> definitely... In the short term. Yeah. So you should be, when you're doing those changes, you need, should be intentional about them and understand we need a, we're going to need a period where our uh, productivity might go down. We might have to sort out different ways of, of working, expectations that this person has because of their background, the people they've worked with before, and maybe in this team, it's a bit different. So we should expect a period of adaptation again. So it's not a, a full new team forming, but it's some disruption that needs to be accounted for. Go back to your the example that you were describing, because I'm curious then, 
because I, I think a lot of our listeners, and I certainly have seen this at different companies, would say, yes, we definitely have some specialists. We definitely have some people who are more expert. Maybe they've been long sitting in the company. They know their architecture better. Many, many different types of special knowledge, right? Well, what do we do then? I mean, we this is just a fact. We just, you know, I don't. You, you tell us we shouldn't be dividing this person among multiple teams, but then we have a that we have a bunch of teams that won't get anything done without this DBA knowledge. So it's a really, really good important. question, and, and I think it it, it 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 gets the nub of some of the dynamics that that we talk about in the book. Let's say you've got someone who's 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 a specialist in. Uh, so th- this is a real example from. Um, from, from uh, a client that we're both working with actually at the moment. Mm. Uh, you've got someone who's a, who's a database specialist and they really understand how to manage databases of different kind of technologies. Um, but they're currently a bottleneck because mm-hmm. they're having to approve all the database changes. What really should be happening is for this person to um, be uh, involved in selecting uh, the, the kind of cloud platform databases that enable the development teams to do things themselves, automate things themselves. Mm-hmm. Also, that person to be um, to write, let's say, some write some documentation uh, or, or some or write some tooling to help these teams uh, write automated database tests, uh, that kind of thing. So, acting as a force multiplier across multiple teams, rather than being r- rather than being the, the, the person who's blocking progress. In this particular case, the individual is really looking forward to getting to the point where. Uh, he can be that kind of force multiplier because he realizes that he shouldn't be there kind of in, in the flow of change. Right. But that, that has been the traditional approach to that kind of skill set is, is they must approve all the change because we, we can't embed that kind of learning in, in, in individual teams. It just doesn't scale at all. It, it, doesn't, it acts against flow. So it's going to be important for organization, hopefully people who read our book will start to realize, yes, we can actually kind of turn this through, through 90 degrees and say, well, how can we help these individuals? What, what's, what skills do these specialists need to help them uh, enable other teams? Mm. So these specialists might actually need some additional skills around you know, writing documentation, around interacting with, with, with teams in a way which is a kind of mentor or, or a tutorial kind of role. Right. They might not have much experience, and so maybe they need help in, in doing that, if you like. Mm-hmm. But the potential there is for them to become uh, hugely kind of valuable, influential, because, precisely because they're actually enabling multiple other teams to to deliver more quickly and more effectively. It's an interesting example because I think some of our listeners might have read a book like The Goal, uh, which is the book that introduced the theory of constraints, and it's this manufacturing paradigm. And in in there, they they talk about how you respond. Once you've identified the bottleneck, what you do. Um, But then they're they're not sure how to make the translation from that manufacturing model where, okay, so we have this piece of equipment, you know, that's the bottleneck. Uh, how do I how do I translate that into the software world? How do I, you know, elevate the bottleneck and subordinate the bottleneck? I can't remember the, the you know the three steps in there, but this is what you're describing. Essentially, you're saying is take it seriously. You've done the bottleneck. It's a, it's a necessary point of investment. And if I take the, the further investment, other places other than the bottleneck won't increase throughput. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm. But, no but, point adding more developers if they're all going to wait on the DBA. Exactly, but, but we've got we've got the, the 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 advantage in this particular case compared to manufacturing, where in this case we can use the subject matter expertise of, of, of an expert like this. In this case, the kind of DBA type person, um, but it could be someone in machine learning, it could be someone in in, in um, infrastructure provisioning, it could be all sorts of things, security, sure, these absolutely. kind of, these kind of things where you need deep expertise, but turning them from being from being someone who needs to execute something 
in a serial fashion uh, before the software goes out the door into a subject matter expert who can help enable these uh, multiple other teams to understand this stuff better mm-hmm. or and or at the same time help, uh, let's say, a platform, internal platform, build something which helps these development teams to move more quickly. Mm-hmm. So if you've got some complicated security checks, don't give it to the security specialist to do every single time. Mm-hmm. Get them to kind of uh, expose their um, expertise in a way which allows the platform to build a, a lot of checks or build some APIs or build some kind of cap- capability right. that enables these development teams to consume that stuff as a service effectively. Mm-hmm. And so the, that person has gone from being a, a bottleneck into being someone who's just opened up the possibilities for the organization to deliver more more, more quickly. Fantastic. The other thing that's important to, to mention is in the book, we talk about getting fast flow of delivery, and that means the, we want the product teams or development teams to have the necessary capabilities to a certain level of understanding of those capabilities. doesn't mean they have to be experts in databases or uh, security, but they need to know enough that they can perform most of the work that they need to do. Hmm. 80%, 90% of the time, they won't need to hand over the, that work to another team or someone else because that's where the wait time uh, starts creeping in, the delivery. So we're talking about setting up those teams to have the kind of baseline capabilities around all these different skills so they can go fast most of the time. There will be occasions where they have a dependency, where they need something so specific that I need my um, database expert to come and, and help me. But you're making it more of the exception exactly. rather well, than the day-to-day. Indeed, and when, when, when that exception arises, when, when, we, when we realize we do need to actually kind of involve someone else in order to, to make this particular change, that's a signal that there's a capability gap in, let's say, the platform or capability gap inside our team. And then that should be a signal to the organization as a whole to say, how can how, how do we bridge that in future? How do we avoid the need for this kind of handoff in, in the future? And is it these kinds of signals? Is it these kinds of patterns? That's what's in the book. I, I'm a mathematician exactly. by training, so I'm curious about <laughs> yeah. the topology. Am I going to find lots of graphs that sort of help me understand how to set up the org chart? What, what am I going to find? Because it sounds fascinating. So the key things we talk about are um, four different types of team that we really think are the only kind of team types, if you like, that we need in an organization, a modern organization delivering software. Uh, or software-based services, not just software, but kind of extends out from that as well. Um, and uh, three different ways in which teams need to interact. And, so, and we believe that, we were kind of surprised actually, but we, that there were so few. Mm-hmm. But we believe, we, we, so we've yet to find a need for any any more team types and any more kind of interaction modes. Mm. Um, this is like quite a challenge you're putting out to our listeners. Indeed, you're, yeah, you're yeah, saying, yeah, totally. You know, you, it sounds like if they if We're they come up with with a, with a fourth type of inter- yeah. interaction or a fifth type of team, you'd be yeah. excited. Well, but, yeah, kind of because because it'd be interesting to hear it. And uh, but but you know we've done the research. We, we've been out there working with lots of organisations in different kind of contexts, and and we. But, but we're one, different. I mean, you must have heard this many times. We're we're, <laughs> we're different. This is our problems aren't like other people. I think one of the, the values from the book is actually having this common lexicon to talk about these things. And there will certainly be situations where actually we're doing some mix of things and we have this different situation, but at least we can reason about it and say, well, you're doing this type of interaction, you're facilitating or you are uh, collaborating. And um, and if you're doing something else, that, you know, that that's um, a possibility as well. But at least we have a frame, a way to frame uh, our thinking around 
these things. So we so we started with sort of this problem case of the cargo cult. They saw now you've introduced this sort of toolkit. Do you, do you have a case where you can give an organization you work with who that they've then understood this lexicon and these different options and then use that to to really change and get different results? You yeah. for our listeners to know, like, yeah, yeah. Where, where are you trying to get to? What, is, what does the success look so like? So there's a really good example from um, from the conference this morning. So Adidas, the, mm -hmm. the uh, worldwide um, sports sports shoe and sports yeah. equipment manufacturer. Yeah, um, and just, I'll translate for American listeners, uh -huh. Adidas. Adidas. Right, <laughs> for the rest of the world, Adidas. Um, and so, um, so uh, Fernando Conago and his colleague uh, presented just this morning on stage uh, about their, their kind of transformation over the last few years. And um, we know that they've used uh, the thinking around kind of teams apologies and, and uh, some of the earlier thinking actually that, that we had uh, before the book was published too um, to uh, create a, a self-service platform for development teams to make it as easy as possible for those teams to to do the right thing mm -hmm. um, to make sure that they've got people who are acting as enablers and so facilitating other teams to to be able to work better and that's an explicit thing that that, uh, that Fernando talked about this morning mm -hmm. Um, and it, and it's, it's it's organizations like that who have who have really understood the kind of social dynamics at play in, in software delivery, who are kind of uh, surfacing um, these kind of explicit different kind of patterns of behavior and and, and ways of working for different teams. So the, the teams inside their platform um, work in a different way compared to the the kind of customer facing teams, and and, and naturally they should do uh, to an extent. Um, and they understand that their role is to enable what the uh, what the product teams are doing, right? And and therefore the platform team is not just going to go out and build an all-encompassing, all singing, all dancing bells and whistles platform like like companies used to do in the past. Right. Their remit is to is to make it safe and easy um, for the delivery these product teams to deliver at speed. Right. And that's a kind of it, it's it's a different different way of perceiving what my role is, if you like. Yes, yes. I'm still doing a lot of Kubernetes and monitoring, whatever, but actually, ultimately, my, my customer is this internal team, and the way I therefore interact is is better defined than it has been in the past. Fantastic. Well, if listeners have enjoyed the uh, pattern library, if you like, that, uh, that we've been hearing about from Matthew and Manuel, um, please have a look at Team Topologies, now available, right? You yes, can buy yes. it. Uh, uh, so we'll have a link in the uh, show notes to a place where you can get hold of, uh, of the book. Um, also, how would they get in touch with you most effectively? Where's the best place to go? Let's go straight to Team Topologies teamtopologies.com. Excellent. Sounds good. So we'll have a link to that as well. And um, uh, thanks very much for, for being on the podcast. And I uh, hope, that, uh, hope that all goes well with the book. Um, uh, we also like it when listeners uh, subscribe to, to us because uh, Troubleshooting Agile comes out every Wednesday. We have interesting people to talk to, interesting arguments about how to improve your Agile team. So uh, please hit the subscribe button in whatever app you might uh, wish to use. And of course, you can find us at troubleshootingagile.com and get in touch by email, Twitter, carrier pigeon, whatever your favorite method is. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Carl. And thanks, Matthew and Manuel. Thank you.